Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow-Up, Maisha Kai. Hello. (laughs) Maisha, today our guest is the very talented Karen Parsons. While people might know her best as the ditzy Hillary Banks from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Karen also happens to be the founder and president of Sweet Blackberry, a creative nonprofit that produces animated films for children about unsung Black heroes from history. And now Karen is adding author to her list of talents, having recently published several children's books, including How High the Moon and Flying Free, How Bessie Coleman's Dreams Took Flight. We got the chance to chat with Karen about what inspired her venture into writing and what she's working on next. Yeah, you know, I I was so tickled (laughs) to talk to Karen. I think, you know, we're of that age where we grew up alongside her on Fresh Prince. And, you know, to see her in this phase, I think, is inspiring on many levels. I mean, here we are 30 years out from the Fresh Prince. And, you know, Karen's now a mom. She's a writer. She's a producer. She's, you know, doing all these things. But what I loved most was just kind of reconnecting with this childhood icon who's now kind of creating these memories for a new generation of kids and the kids in my life love it. So so I was really excited. No, I was equally thrilled to talk to Karen. Uh, Hillary Banks is a style icon of mine. Yes. And I thought it was so interesting where she talks about how people, because she played a ditzy character, she had to come out from underneath that and be like, you know, actually that's not, that's not who I am. And actually there's more depth to that ditziness than you could have ever imagined. She's far from ditzy, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, like not at all. Like She's definitely someone that you want to get into and you want to get to know. So with that, let's get to the interview. Let's do it. Hey, Karen. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to It's Lit. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an honor to have you. I mean, I got to admit, it's a little surreal having you with us today after, like, I feel like I know you, even though I know that I don't. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure you get that a lot, considering <laughs> that you were on our TV screens in our homes for so long. And like last year marked 30 years since the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air premiere. I know, it's kind of crazy. That is so wild. How did we all get old? I know, I know. I mean, because we were right there with you. (laughs) I I was right there. And it happened. (laughs) It just happened. But, well, more on that later. Today, we're here to talk about your books. Okay. And since It's Lit is a podcast all about Black books and writers, we like to begin each episode by asking our guests to name at least one book they've considered life-changing, life-affirming, revolutionary, like it blew your mind. What book or books was that for you? Um, First one that comes to mind is The Bluest Eye, um, which just blew my mind, which was amazing and, uh, you know, surprisingly accessible. I think I had this whole buildup that always that Tony's books were hard to, I mean, they, they can be, I guess, but but I was so taken and um, I loved, I, I just love her. I love her writing. I love her, I love her, her mind uh, and her storytelling. I still, I think I want to stick with that. 
I think I mean, I think of other it's things. A book. There are all other things that kind of made impressions, and but nothing I don't think has had the same kind of impression on me. No, I definitely can relate. I, I had a similar, I. yeah, I, yeah. We all had a similar response to Blue Sky. It's an amazing, amazing novel. So, Karen, when you published your first book, the young adult novel "How High the Moon Last March," and by December you've published your second, <laughs> the illustrated children's book "Flying Free: How Bessie Coleman's Dreams Took Flight." Yes. Amazing. So considering all that we know that happened last year, it is pretty remarkable to put out one book, let alone <laughs> two. Well, <laughs> What gave you the confidence to move into this new creative medium and what compelled you to write for younger audiences? Um, my mother was a librarian and I grew up a time in libraries. As an adult, she was still a librarian and she headed the Black Resource Center where she worked. And she'd tell me stories all the time about people in Black history that she found amazing stories she'd never heard. And in doing so, she told me the story of Henry Box Brown, the enslaved man who mailed himself to freedom, literally, in a box. And that became the impetus for my organization, Sweet Blackberry. And our mission is to bring little known stories of African-American achievement to children. And we were doing it through, through little movies, but I always wanted it to be books. It's just self-publishing when I first started wasn't as simple. As, it wasn't something that was really something easy to do at the time. So I ended up making these little films. But that's, in terms of getting into the kids stuff, it kind of stumbled into it with that because... I thought, God, this is an amazing story, and nobody I know knows. I never heard his story. Nobody I know knows his story. It's such a perfect kids' book, and so that, like I said, that became that's that's what how I jumped into doing Sweet Blackberry, which I wrote the stories and uncovered one after another stories of people in Black history that we just don't hear about so much or at all. And I was writing them, and so I found myself writing kid stuff without thinking about it. Cause some, you know, I loved writing and somebody had to write these <laughs> scripts basically at the time they were like scripts for the film. And eventually somebody, you know, that was paying attention to it that I had that knew me back when the Fresh Prince ended and all, I was at home just writing all the time. And this is somebody I met then. They didn't meet me during Fresh Prince. He met me after while I was at home spending hours just writing. And so he knew me that way and he approached me and he's like, I think it's time you, you wrote a novel. And he was in a position to get it to people, to show it to people. So I worked for a few years on it and, and it, it was, it made sense to do a middle grade book, um, a kid's book again, but not, a, not for little kids. And so that's how high, how high the moon kind of came about. It also is my, my mom grew up in the South she grew up in a little town outside of Charleston, South Carolina in the forties. And she always talked about how great her childhood was, how happy her childhood was. Everything was always so positive. And, and that, was, that, that was my mom, always very, very positive. It took me a long time to finally catch on and say, wait a minute, you grew up in the Jim Crow South and you're going to tell me everything was perfect, you know, roses and rainbows and stuff. Exactly. exactly. And um, you got to tell me more. So that's where I started kind of pushing and prodding and asking questions. And she was eager to answer. She meant it when she said she had a great childhood. Now, I, I just wanted to find out how that came to be. So I was kind of writing to find out 
putting myself in her shoes and kind of making this, you know, version of, of me in her shoes in the forties, what that might be like. So it added some different complexity because I made the character potentially biracial. Um, this is a whole story of Ella not knowing who her father is and if she's possibly white and what that might mean with uh, the segregation that she lives in. So, yeah, so that was, that's a lot of where that came about. The long answer. <laughs> wow. It was a great answer. I, especially, especially related uh, to you talking about your mother describing her childhood as positive. Yes. Uh, in the Jim Crow South. Both my parents are from the Jim Crow South. Uh, my mother never described her childhood as positive under any certain terms. But my dad often tells like these like wonderful, nuanced, funny stories about being a kid growing up in Texas with his brothers. But at the same time, all these terrible things are happening all around him. So I can totally relate to when, when you talk about your mom and how she had this wonderful childhood during a time that wasn't exactly so wonderful for African-Americans in this country. Exactly. I mean, another thing that that's in the book is I brought the story of George Stinney Jr. into the book. And when I would do my research for Sweet Blackberry, I often came across George Stinney's picture, you know, and for people who don't know, George Stinney at 14 years old was the youngest person ever executed in the United States. He was accused of murdering two little white girls. And, you know, many years after the fact, they brought the trial back up, discovered, oh, ooh, it was a sham surprise. And they threw it all out. But this 14-year-old boy was killed. And his story was heartbreaking to me. And it, was, it wasn't it uh, was another story that I would tell people. They didn't know. They had never heard it. But it wasn't an inspiring or empowering Sweet Blackberry story. So it was not something I could tell that way. But then when I was writing How High the Moon, George grew up. Uh, around the same time my mom did outside of Charleston and, you know, not the same town, but another town. So it just made sense that he would fold into the story, come into the story. This was an opportunity to bring him in as one of Ella's friends and let people know a little bit about him. So Flying Free, which gives a really playful and poetic spin on the story of aviator Bessie Coleman, who was the first Black woman to acquire a pilot's license, is a very different book from How High the Moon, which is obviously really well-researched historical fiction. What gave you the confidence to dive into both these projects? And has the feedback been at all surprising? Um, well, you know, like I said, the, I've been doing the Sweet Blackberry films, and the Bessie Coleman book was a little film first, and then I we kind of made this made this book, which is a different a different process. And so gratifying, I have to say. Um, but working with the same illustrator, R. Gregory Christie. For me, you know, I'm I'm not a historian. I hated history as a kid. There, I said it. It's, I hated <laughs> history. I mean, it was presented to me so like it is to a lot of kids, or at least growing up. I don't know if they're still like doing it like this, but it was so dry and it was so dull. And it was so unrelatable. And, you know, all pictures are in black and white. And the print was really small in the books. And it was all about memorizing dates. And, <laughs> you know, it was just like, you didn't know how it related to anything about you. I wanted to, with these stories, I wanted to entertain kids and, 
I wanted to meet them where they are. I wanted it to be fun. The stories are incredible. There are incredible stories out there. Bessie Coleman's story is amazing. If she was around today, we'd all be talking about how incredible she was, right? So I just wanted to bring her to children to inspire them, to show them what they're capable of. And in doing that, I mean, in terms of confidence to do it, it's just, I'm learning too. I'm researching, I'm finding out stuff, I'm putting in, I'm trying to figure out what the best story is to bring to children. I'm not gonna be able to cover everything. <laughs> but I can bring them enough to plant the seeds. They feel like, I know who that is when they hear anything. You know, I know, I, oh, I, they at least know. There was a black pilot, Bessie Coleman, she got her international pilot's license before Amelia Earhart did, you know, they, they know some, they'll know something and that will spark more interest as they get older. So that is, I'm just like, I'm just like a kid in it myself. Well, that makes sense to me because I, I have to say, so I, I read the Bessie Coleman book and then for Christmas, got it for my niece and nephew who are also loving it. <laughs> so thank you for that. It, it makes it like you nailed it because they are six and eight and they are so into it. They think it's so cool. You know, and, and what you just said about history is, is also interesting to me. You are not the first person <laughs> to say that on this podcast. Interestingly enough, Jason Reynolds said the same thing. We were talking about Stamped. He said the same thing. He hated history books. And when he was approaching adapting Ibram X. Kendi's uh, stamp through in the beginning, he was like, that was my big roadblock that, you know, I had to like take on this historical text. So I, I'm fascinated by that. But it is such a wonderful, accessible way to introduce these stories to kids. And, and which leads me back actually to the George Stinney, <laughs> you know, conversation, because these are not stories we're always taught in school. And in terms of representing George Stinney in popular culture or literature. I think like the only other book I could think of is uh, Billy by Albert French, which was based on that story, loosely based on that story. But you do something really surprising in How High the Moon. Uh, at least it was, it struck me as surprising. I thought it was so clever. And so I have to ask you about it, which is that you kind of present him. He's not, you know, he's not one of the well, we don't know he's one of the main characters, you know, like we don't know this, you know, and I'm trying to say this without spoiling too much. Thankfully, the, the book has been out almost a year, but <laughs> the way that he's introduced is so beautiful. And I think that uh, I'm just I'm I'm intrigued to know why why you wanted to tell it that way. What what inspired you to tell it that way? I I've been in touch with the Stinney family, but I didn't talk to them before I wrote what I wrote. And I. I guess it's, you know, it's choked up thinking about it. I, you can't, you can't help but look at this 14 year old boy and think about what he could have had, mm -hmm. who he may have been falling in love, having, you know, his little aspirations at that age. You know, there's, you're not thinking about, most kids aren't thinking about like what they're really going to do with their life, but they have things that excite them, things they think they're good at. And they, they're definitely at, at that age, they're becoming interested in, in other people, right? They're starting to find love and, you know, thinking about themselves that way and looking at people differently. And so with George, I liked the idea of him. I liked, I liked how he related to Henry. I liked him being kind of this little bigger kid who 
who kind of was looking out for him and could see him. And, you know, I liked that. And I loved the idea of him having, I loved him and Myrna finding each other. Mm-hmm. And um, when I first wrote the book, actually, I had him as a, as a memory. I had him far away <laughs> as somebody who had, who had visited. And, and then uh, upon a, an early reading, someone said, you have to bring him into the front. I think it's so effective. It really is. I was really scared to do. I went a little far. There's some stuff I had in it that I had to take out too. But yeah, at first, I think I was just really kind of scared to get too close to to him and to it, bringing him into the story. But ultimately, I really liked his story, his and Berna's story, a lot. And um, like I said, I you know I can't you can't help but think of like what he was robbed of. I think you really gave, gave, you humanized him. You brought him back to life for a generation that. Thank you. That's what I I wanted to do. I wanted him to be just the kid that we know, you know, coming through here with, you know, who's going to come see your, your sister and take her out. You know, it's like, I know him, George, you know, and (laughs) I just wanted it to be like that guy. And you group because there are other kids that are around and you kind of pick up the dynamics of all of the, of just kids that you know. Mm-hmm. But the thought that one of the kids, because also when I was writing this book, you know, I was opening up my laptop almost every day to another young black man being killed. You know, it was, it was, it was, it still is, but it was really crazy, crazy times. It was hard. And so that started, that had a, a place in the, in the book as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like this summer, I was not writing about that kind of subject matter, and it was very difficult to write because of what's happening in the world. Just what you're writing seems terribly unimportant if it's unrelated. And um, so when I was writing How High the Moon, that definitely informed George's place in the book, his hold in the book, and how I felt giving him life and seeing him as like these other young men that have, that were robbed. Um you know, he's just one of the guys, and you don't realize in that group of guys that one of them might get plucked for no reason, you know, except for how they look. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I think it's important to note that How High the Moon does tackle some pretty, pretty, you know, nuanced themes aside from, you know, segregation and the myriad dangers posed to Black folks under uh, Jim Crow. You know, as you noted, there's biracial identity that's being explored. There's colorism that comes up here. There's even same gender loving relationships, which, you know, for the time frame, it's kind of like, hmm, <laughs> you know. Now, I know that you are a uh, a parent as well as a writer. How did you develop a comfort in approaching those issues with young readers and the young people in your life? And 
why do you feel it's so important to do that? Like, and, and to integrate that, I guess, into things that they might be reading independently. Well, I think it's really important, number one, because I want them to, I want them to, I mean, that's what books give us, right? You just get to go into the world of, of all sorts of people and understand them, feel for them, experience what their lives and what they're exposed to in the world. I mean, it's just, it's other worlds. That's why we read. So, so, but if we can, and we want it, we want our children to have empathy and to have compassion for others. And I think that's what it gives them and, and exposing them to all sorts of people is important. I mean, I think that's all, here we go. It's all why we're so divided right now too, is that people don't know people. They think they know people. <laughs> they think they know. <laughs> and so they make these judgments and they have their prejudices and they go into the world. I just think it's really important to um, to be honest with kids as much as possible. I found with the Sweet Blackberry books, I found that first challenge of like trying to teach because I sat down to write the very first Sweet Blackberry story, which was the journey of Henry Box Brown about this this enslaved man. And I had wanted to do it for so long. And when I sat down to write it, I thought, oh, shoot, how do I teach children about slavery? You know, little kids. And it was all of a sudden it was so daunting. Like, you know, you want to be gentle, but how do you bring this to them? And so it took me a while to figure it out. I brought animals into it (laughs) and that helped. But there were little particular things like, you know, talking about the whip Mm. and crack. And then when we did the animated part, we were saying, well, do we show the whip? Do we make a sound with the whip? You know, what's too far? What's too much? We want to tell the truth. And I've learned a lot by watching that film with kids, by doing the other stories and watching them with children and talking to them. Because I do, I go around when we're not in a pandemic, I go around the country, I talk to, I screen these films for the kids and I talk to them. They're resilient, they're ready for a lot. And it's important also for us to, to be with them, for them to ask those questions. And when my son read How High the Moon, didn't know what lynching was he he didn't understand you know so we had but that we were able to have conversation about it and be safe and talk about it and all of his questions that as much as I can answer I can answer for him and I think that's important and I think that's great in the classroom as well but I think it's important that you bring if you can bring in relationships people might not have in their own world in their life you know people that love each other but they're not like relationships you know that's good Let's have that in there. Let's let kids be exposed and be, feel like they know somebody. And let's show them things that they they may or may not have heard of and educate them a little bit through story. It's such a great opportunity. Why not take it when you can? No, like I what I like about your work and the fact that, you know, you're writing for the younger audience, but you're trying to write in an accessible way. Um, which makes me kind of want to double back um a little bit about what we we're talking about earlier about Black Joy, since you mentioned that How High the Moon was inspired by your mother's childhood, how did her experience help you understand joy differently, particularly Black joy, considering that often where we're trying to find our joy is out of like just chaos and madness and we're, you know, still trying to find our happy place. Can you describe how that experience helped you understand it? Well, my mom was, for really, it was family and community. And I find that to be the truth with with most of us. I think community 
definitely family, but community, whoever you make that family of yours, that extended family, that's where people start to feel safe and comfortable in themselves and not like an outsider or, or wrong somehow, you know, where you're always just kind of uncomfortable because you're, you don't fit right. You're not right. You know, the messages that you're getting are that you're not right. And one of the beauties in it, I don't want to say this this is terrible, but (laughs) in how my moon, they're all, everyone in their neighborhood is black, right? Except for the Parkers who own the, the store. They're white. My mom grew up, but it was all black. She did not see white people. And that's part of the reason why she didn't have any problems. As <laughs> she, was, she didn't see white people. She did say there was a story that she told me where there was a, a truck pulled up. And I guess it was a, a white man got out and he went and talked to her, her grandpa. And um, there were some kids in the back of the truck. And when he went in to talk with the grownups or the grandpa, the kids hopped off the back of the truck and all the kids were playing together. And when the adults <laughs> came out and saw the kids playing, they just went nuts and separated them and got mad and hurry up and get over here. And, and they never saw the kids again, but they said they drove off and they were like, what happened? <laughs> Nobody knew what was wrong. White kids didn't know what was wrong. My mom and her siblings didn't know what was wrong. They were just kids. So they were open and ready to have a good time as kids. But they didn't see the conflict and it was kept from them. It was going on outside of their small town because they didn't interact. But I just think that, you know, if you have community that loves you and sees you, it doesn't have to be all Black. (laughs) You have people that love you and see you and appreciate you, I think that's where we find our joy. We're allowed to follow our joy and be loved and supported. And sometimes that means, and family can be rough. We all know sometimes family is not as smooth as all of that, but it's important, I think, for us to to look for, to find our tribe, to find the people that make our heart beat faster and who bring us up and who challenge us you know, in the right way, in a good way, who try to, to try to challenge us and we challenge them and we make each other grow, we make each other better. And I think when we have that, we find that we feel comfortable in nurturing that in each other, then I think we're good. Then I think we're all right. But if we're constantly pushing up against things and feeling like we're wrong, we are just inherently wrong somehow. Mm-hmm. good. You know, that I, I, almost, I teared up as you were saying that because I think we've all had that experience of, being in a situation, you know, where you you do you feel inherently wrong, you don't know how to overcome that. But speaking of joy <laughs> and community and family, even you know, as as we all know, <laughs> you are uh, someone that those of us of a certain generation, you know, we we associate with a certain joy and family, a TV family, <laughs> as we, you know, obviously originally became familiar with you, a lot of us, as Hillary Banks. And that that character for me was like an early style icon. So thank you, because I'm I'm now a fashion editor. So there you go. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, 30 years after you originated that role and having become a parent and now writing for children, you know, has being part of so many other people's childhoods and adolescence informed you at all 
as a writer? And and what, I guess, if anything, did being part of such an enduring show teach you about storytelling? <sighs> Interesting. Um, I will tell you that until recently, I have spent all these decades feeling flattered but ultimately kind of dismissive of the impact that the show had on people. I'm like, oh, that's so nice. Oh, that's... <laughs> You're not letting it land, really. And I think the reunion helped this in particular, but even before that a little bit, I started going to Comic-Cons and I was meeting people and having time to actually talk to them. And it started to hit me, um, it started to hit me how, how, how much of an impact the show had on people. And I started to really, it went in. I, in particular, at a Comic-Con, I had a situation where Kristen McNichol and Tatum O'Neill were at a table across from me. Now, I grew up as a child wanting to be an actor since I was a kid. So I watched child actors. I had to see everything Jodie Foster was in, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted a child actress. I wanted to act from a child, from that age, from a young age. So I, I, you know, I had lasered in on Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill as a kid and watched. Yeah. Little Darling. Was it Little Darling? Little Darling. Yes. (laughs) Little Darlings. That's why they had them together. Mm -hmm. So they were there and I was like, oh, I can't wait to go see them. And the person helping me watched me all weekend, avoid going over there. Finally, it was like, you know, it's quiet. You should probably go over there now. And I was like, oh, I don't know, maybe. And I was scared. And I finally made my way over to their table. I start looking at all their pictures from still shots from family and bad news bears and old army. <laughs> and I start feeling that rush of my childhood. And everything I start saying to them is everything everybody says to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. This is my childhood. I know I sound really stupid, but this is this is like this affects me so much. I feel you know, like everything just was like, and I couldn't stop it. Like everything that came out was like, oh my god, I can't believe I said that. Oh, I can't believe I said. That. And they were wonderful, but it did really hit me. Like they are a part of me, and they have a place in me, and they affected who I am and who I was as I went through life and became an actor and everything. Right? That's no small thing. They. <laughs> so when people were, you know so it started to hit me when people started saying stuff about fresh prince i had to go wow that's incredible and i have to tell you as a bougie black girl growing up you made you made it okay for us you really did <laughs> most definitely i felt better i felt affirmed in the world <laughs> i did i was like that I, I see my representation matters. I saw myself. Yes. 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 <laughs> no, no, it's, it's an honor. I mean, really, you know, it, it's an honor to have had that role in your life. <laughs> but it, it's, it is an honor to have that place in people's lives. People say, you don't understand. I went home. Tiffany Haddish was saying, like, she's like, you don't understand. I'm <laughs> home. And that was it. Like, you know, you sit there with your food and you're just like ready. Yes. You, everything else would fall away. Or in my case, the closet trying to like mimic the outfits. Like, <laughs> let me get a vest. <laughs> let me. <laughs> a hat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who would think that all these years later people were like, that she's still like this style icon thing. But it, you know, it was, I was lucky I worked with, I always thought about that way, and I still do, uh, in the fact that I, I had great writers, great directors, team, 
Judy Richmond, who dressed me from day one to the end was just, you know, perfect. And, um, and the cast, you know, I just had these, these wonderful people. I was so blessed to have brought into my life that I love to be with at work, after work, you know, play with. And it feels so good when you, when you have that kind of rhythm and you work well with people and you're like family. I mean, we were just, we were very, very fortunate. So on all around having that place in people's lives, impacting so many decades later, because people are always saying, you know, it was my favorite show growing up, but now it's my kid's favorite show. You know, I hear that decade after decade, I hear that. <laughs> and uh, so that is, is just tremendous to be a part of something like that all around. Ah, oh, definitely. And it's just like, and it lives on through reruns. Like it's, you can still watch the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right on television. There's like a whole generation of young people who are like sitting at home after school, still watching it. Like it's, mm -hmm. the impact is incredible. So I feel like though, we should also make it clear that you have never stopped acting. Not really. You were in like one a film that I really loved a few years back called uh, Mixing Nia that I really enjoyed. <laughs> You know, like, but, um, you know, you're someone who has really enjoyed a long and ongoing creative career and has continually challenged yourself to explore new mediums and projects. So, you know, what's next? And is there any philosophy or advice you have to share on continuing to creatively evolve as a person? Oh, you just said it. I mean, I, I think it's important to continue to creatively evolve as a person, you know, I, I don't, I don't have to be locked into a decision I made at 17 years old about what I want to do with my life. 17 year old girl doesn't have to determine my entire future. You know, just because she said, I'm going to be an actress. I don't have to be like, that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. If I change, I love, I still love acting. That hasn't stopped, but I found, you know, a friend of mine pushed me to go study with this, writer uh, an instructor and I did and I just was like this is what I want to do you know all of a sudden it was like and I love it there are lots of things that I enjoy and I don't see why I think that with everybody it's like we don't have to, you, you, if something really moves in you follow it follow that joy follow that I think that's really important I I was very nervous about telling people that I wrote. How much you're so good at it. <laughs> thank you. I, thank you so much. And I was really nervous about sharing that because I was afraid of being laughed at. I, I've been an actress my whole life and everybody had, now everybody had signed off because of the success I had with, with it, that like, that's what you do. That's who you are. And you played an actress that's not necessarily very bright. It's <laughs> 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 not very bright. So making a switch to like, Hey, I want to write. Just was like, I can't say that. I can't, <laughs> I can't put that out there to people because they'll laugh me out of the room. There were quite a few people who didn't know I wrote until my book came out. And a lot of people going, what? <laughs> I wasn't talking, I wasn't advertising it, but I basically <laughs> encourage anyone who has something bubbling in them that they want to do good. That's that bubble isn't there for no reason. It ain't gas. You know what I mean? <laughs> do it. Do it. Go. There's so much that 
we are, right? We don't have to limit ourselves and we definitely should never allow other people to limit us. Exactly. Exactly. And also just to remind people at home, Karen Parsons is an actor. She just was acting dumb. <laughs> Not actual dumb person. Very smart. I'm going to recommend that they, that they read these books or read them to yes. their children and then they will find out exactly how not dumb she <laughs> is. I can see she was fun. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us on It's Lit. It's been delightful. Absolutely. Yeah, this has been so great to have you with us. And since, you know, you're an author and then you di- you changed that label because, you know, <laughs> screw labels, you definitely have to come back I will. with your next project because I know you're not going to stop at two books, girl. Nope. No, no, no. Other stuff I'm working on, too. So. All right. I'd love to. Thank you. Awesome. Hi, it's Oprah Winfrey. Calling to tell you, I don't know you, but I love you. I want to welcome you to a brand new podcast called Pass the Peas, brought to you by Very Smart Brothers and TheRoot.com, hosted by myself, Panama Jackson. This is a podcast that's going to bring you news. It's going to bring you discussions about what's going on in pop culture and black culture. So check us out every Friday, wherever you get your podcast. And oh, one last thing. Hey, yo, Barack, uh, what was it that you were saying earlier? I also just wanted to see who the brothers were who named themselves the very smart brothers. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. Before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you getting into these days? You know, I have been leaning into some poetry. I know it is not everybody's genre of choice and it's not always easy for people to read. But I have been reading Black Girl Call Home by Jasmine Manns, who's going to be joining us on the show soon. And uh, this is a really beautiful book. It's just, I, you know, when you read a book and whether it's prose or, you know, a screenplay or poetry, and from the first page you feel, you recognize yourself, you feel seen. And this is one of those books. And you know, Jasmine goes far beyond that scope. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really entranced by it in, in terms of the kind of things it touches on uh, in the, in the black feminine experience. I think <laughs> that we know so well. What are you reading these days, Danielle? Well, unfortunately, because I don't read very fast, because I'm just a touch busy, <laughs> just, just a skosh, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I'm still digesting Robin Mitchell's Venus Noir. But I have been watching some television and I'm really excited about The Falcon and the Winter Soldier on Disney+. Plus. I cannot wait for this series to release at the end of the week. I feel like you're our superhero superhero. (laughs) (laughs) I do love me some superheroes, yes. You do. (laughs) I love them so much. And that's it for this week. 
Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit. 